0: Well, Jess, how are you on this lovely Friday afternoon?
1: I'm good. It's been a very busy week with all the SEO deadlines, but I'm free of all that now. So yes, I'm doing very well today, Charles. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. In fact, this is not my first recording session of the day. I spent the morning in a music recording studio. About a year ago, I joined a band with a bunch of other middle-aged men. And today we were finishing the mix of our latest single which will come out in a couple of weeks time so very excited about that
1: so exciting did you have to do lots of takes or was it all done in one go?
0: well there was a previous session where we had to do lots of takes and make sure I was singing in tune and all that stuff and this was just the mixing getting all the levels right we were in the hands of professionals so it's pretty good
1: really exciting I mean we got a pretty decent setup here but maybe not quite as advanced as that maybe though
0: Exactly. Well, look, I'm just glad the weekend is within touching distance. As you say, all the Lloyd's SAO deadlines this week, you know, all this year-end reporting every day, there's a new company reporting results. It's an interesting year-end for insurers to say the very least. So it'd be brilliant to have a session talking about the latest trends and topics relevant for the reserving of general insurers Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having a chat about that and and getting, you know, your views as well, Jess, on what you're seeing.
1: Yeah, I'm really pleased to welcome back to Insurance Uncut, Laura Hoburn with us today. Uh, So Laura's a partner here at LCP and advises clients on a range of actuarial matters. She is also on the IFOA GI Research and Thought Leadership Committee and also on the London Market Actuaries Group Committee and also many other positions that she holds across the market. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Jessica Snowball.
0: And I'm Charles Cronier. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you. So please get in touch via LinkedIn or our website.
1: Let's jump into this week's episode.
2: Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Laura, how has your year-end been so far?
2: It's been a good one. It's been very interesting. Operationally, for me, it's actually gone very smoothly, but that doesn't mean the results have all been wonderful or that there haven't been challenges. I guess a big news story for pretty much everyone is casualty this year.
0: Absolutely. There seems to be a broad consensus that, let's say, on underwriting years 2014 to 2019, reserves have had to go up. A lot. It feels like every other day, there's yet another insurer announcing a half a billion dollar reserve strengthening. And in some cases, that's not even hurting the share price, which is even more unbelievable. So we're really in uh, unfamiliar territory, aren't we?
2: Yeah, we are. So you have mentioned that, and we've seen in the press that quite a few firms have been taking this reserve charge on prior years driven by casualty. And we've certainly seen in our own projects, adverse casualty trends in our own analysis. So that's the work we do as well as market data that we analyze. And we can touch on that in a minute. But on the other hand, things are looking pretty good on the more recent years. So 2020 through 2023 is definitely looking more promising. So you've very much got that mix of the prior years and then the newer years.
0: Yeah, a real game of two halves, isn't it?
2: Definitely. So if we ignore for a second, just some of the actual reserves and what people are doing on that and just step back to look at the raw claims data that we're seeing and trends. It's not a new thing. We saw this at year end last year as well. And those who've been to our presentations will be familiar with some of this material. But we have seen a real slowdown in incurred and paid development on those older underwriting years in particular. So, there is a lot more late development coming through than has been typical in the past. So, the sorts of things we're looking at there are Past a certain point in development, so relative to year two, three, four, for example, on certain casualty classes, there's a really, really strong trend of deterioration. And that's particularly on sort of general liability globally, and of course, more pronounced in the US as it often is.
0: Yeah, and people talk about nuclear verdicts and these sorts of things. Certainly, a comment I heard recently is that in the US, and particularly in the southern states, there's a feeling that because court awards and jury awards are becoming so big that there's a much stronger incentive for claimants to take a claim all the way to court because they feel that they will get a lot more that way. And so that's obviously one hit to the reserves. But then the other hit is that the claims are developing more slowly. So it takes longer for the claims to reach settlement. So whatever reserving patterns people were using in the past are possibly not quite relevant anymore.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Also seeing on medical malpractice and professional indemnity too. And the latter one's particularly interesting because we're seeing a real shift outside of the US and that's slowing down across Europe and Australia and other territories. So very much not just a US thing, even though we are sometimes thinking of nuclear
1: verdicts being a US
0: focused thing.
1: So what outside of the US is driving that deterioration then? So in Europe, what's causing that?
0: I mean, I can give a view. It's not an expert view, because in a sense, I'm not entirely sure. But what we certainly have seen is that other countries and even historical developing countries are definitely gravitating towards the way that things work in more developed economies like the US in terms of becoming more litigious, and also in terms of legislation being ramped up on liability issues. One example we're seeing is certainly within shipping, where there were certain countries in the world where if a ship ran aground off the coast, it's a terrible thing, and there could be pollution and whatnot. But there wouldn't necessarily be strong legal action from that local government. But many countries are catching up now. And so there's places where a claim wouldn't have been that expensive before, but now it absolutely is.
1: Is it basically inevitable that everyone will catch up to the US eventually? Or Will people set their own standards and not want to emulate the environment
0: within the US? The US itself is still morphing. In certain countries in the past where it claims litigation has maybe got out of control from a financial point of view, there have been taught reforms. To tighten things up and balance the playing field a bit more in the favour of defendants. But I think with the prevalence of very populist politics across much of the world, there's a huge number of countries having elections this year. Populist politics is having a real heyday. I can't see that tort reform being something that a politician will feel is going to help them get elected. Perhaps moving on from this slightly and just thinking about this question of the game of two halves, where we've got clearly the massive need for reserve strengthening on back years, but then the feeling that the last few years have been very profitable. I guess the question in my mind is, are they really profitable? Will they ultimately prove to be profitable? What are the reasons why they might and what are the reasons why they might not?
2: I guess if we start off with 2020, as that's one of the first of the good years, so to speak. So just prior to COVID, there was a lot of remediation on casualty, particularly the FinPro classes and also some of the general liability classes. Rates were starting to harden, terms and conditions were improving. So there was a lot of active decisions taken to try to improve the market. Then we had COVID and many of these classes really benefited from the lack of activity. So less stuff going on, less chance for things to go wrong and fewer claims. So 2020 was looking really good on many of these classes, but at least in part, this was due to COVID. We then move on to 21 to 23, and it's still looking good. But then it's a matter of how much of that is remediation, genuine improvement that we will see continuing to improve, or is there something still to come with behaviours having changed post-COVID, lots of geopolitical risk around the world, economies struggling, And for example, Jess, I know you're doing a lot of work at the moment around climate litigation, but is this something that's going to come and really bite the insurers on some of these years?
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, that delayed effect from COVID in terms of the activity that might have happened within these last few years. Is it actually just going to come a little bit later than we might normally have expected because people have been preoccupied with other things almost?
0: Certainly. One book I looked at recently, Employer's Liability Claims, we've seen a recent tick up in claim frequency, which kind of goes against the previous trend. And there's a real debate as to whether that is genuine bad news or whether it's just claims that were delayed during the COVID period and are now coming out of the wash. Impossible to say at the moment, but that's clearly something you've got to keep a close eye on.
1: Just coming back to your point on the kind of climate litigation stuff, that's definitely a worry, I think, for many insurers out there, that that could be something that stings them. With very early days, a lot of the litigation so far has been brought against governments and governmental bodies. But I think we're going to start seeing it filter through down into companies.
0: Laura, I just wanted to pick up on that underwriting remediation point, because we know that that's very true within the Lloyds market that Lloyd syndicates were leaned on pretty heavily by Lloyds to clean up the poorer performing parts of their books over the last few years. I'm just wondering, where do those risks go, the risks that are no longer being written by the Lloyd syndicates? And are they just being written by people outside the Lloyds market? And are they still making it through to the global reinsurance markets? And is that why we're seeing some big global reinsurers having to put through such big reserve deteriorations?
2: I think some of them will be going elsewhere if it is purely a a risk is disappearing. But other things when it comes to things such as terms and conditions changes or on the property side, actually just enhancing, making sure that you're pushing through the appropriate valuations each year. So I think it's a mixture. Some is just better underwriting discipline, maintaining those terms and conditions, possibly firms needing to retain a little more, but some of them will be going elsewhere.
1: A key factor of this iteration is the social inflation element of this. Do you think the market is properly capturing, quantifying and allowing for that when doing reserving? I think the market is trying to properly
2: quantify it and allow for it when doing reserving, but it is such a big unknown. It's also not a nice, neat index that you can use. You do typically see with social inflation, it is very lumpy. We've been here before there have been other periods where we've had very high social inflation but it is a matter of okay 10 million sounds like a really good number it's not going to go to 10.2 and then 10.4 it's going to go from 10 and then maybe 12. so it is lumpy year by year i think the data is pretty scarce and a lot of the data that we collect probably isn't good enough in the first place and even if we do collect data that in theory could be good it's still probably a bit too scarce and lumpy to actually really measure social inflation. So I think people are thinking about it very carefully and trying to do the right thing. We've definitely seen increased inflation loads. Last year in the Lloyds market, there was a big chunk of inflation put in. This year, we haven't seen a lot of reduction of that on the social inflation side. So I'd say they're definitely trying to do something, but I don't think it's quite there. And I don't think it's perfect at the moment there is more consideration than there once was on inflation about it being about claims inflation and not a pure economic measure or index-led inflation measure and connecting events in people's minds so geopolitical risk can lead to supply chain issues which might increase our claims so there is more awareness there is more being done but it's definitely not perfect.
0: Just picking up that inflation point, I suppose in my mind, the list of potential concerns about things that might drive continued high inflation just seems to be getting longer. So we had all the inflationary effects of breakdowns in supply chains because of COVID, where you couldn't get certain goods and services, there were delays, they cost more, etc. Then prices have continued to go up what we're now seeing is that despite prices maybe easing off, so price inflation perhaps coming down, wage inflation is continuing to be really high in many countries. And logically, that wage inflation has got to work its way back into the system. So for me, that just feels like it's very likely that we'll see that higher for longer inflation scenario. And then you add on to that, The fact that geopolitical risk is ramping up massively. So we felt there was a big ramp up in geopolitical risk on the back of the Ukraine invasion from Russia, but there's been several other things since then. I'm starting to hear anecdotal stories about businesses who are being badly affected by the tax in the Red Sea, which are forcing shipping to go to take alternative routes you know, a friend of mine works for a publishing company. They're about to do a big book launch, and the launch is basically being ruined by the fact that they can't get the books because the shippers had to take the long way around. And I'm sure there are loads of examples like that.
1: I guess, slightly on the, I don't know, we'll see. Obviously, today it was announced that the UK is heading into a recession, quite likely. That's what the data so far is suggesting. What kind of impact is that going to then potentially have coming up over the next year? Is that going to reverse any of these trends or make it worse?
0: I suppose there's reduced economic activity. is bad for business, means there's less business going on. That can also mean that the smoothness of global trade gets disrupted. So that could be bad for prices. But on the other hand, lower activity, especially for liability classes of insurers, might mean fewer opportunities for claims. So potentially lower claim frequency. We know that even post-COVID, we've seen continued low claim frequency in general liability. I guess one of the theories there is that even post-COVID, there's so many human interactions that now happen online rather than in person. So there's definitely a continued drop in the frequency there. The question, though, is the claims that have dropped out of the system, that, that drop in frequency, what kind of claims were those? Were those rock-solid claims that would have resulted in settlements, or were they the perhaps the slightly more iffy claims? And if they were these less high quality claims, then they might have been the ones that were driving the peak and release pattern in incurred development. And what that means is that you've got good news from lower frequency, but you might also have a slower development pattern. And if you don't catch that, you could still get your reserves wrong.
2: In addition, the economic uncertainty, it's been around for a while. So we may not have officially been in a recession or anything else, but I think now for at least a couple of years, pricing actories, reserving actories and others within the business have actually been considering what happens if there's a recession and whether it's an official recession or not, there's definitely been that awareness around what could happen or what they should be doing. So I don't think it's quite as simple as everything was fine. And then actually, if there's a recession, what's going to happen? So particularly around the financial line side, we do see some people have loaded already just in case there is one.
0: And I suppose we've yet to see the full impact of higher interest rates, let's say, on fixed rate mortgages coming up for renewal and what the social impact will be in the UK and other countries when suddenly a lot of people have to find a lot more money to pay their mortgage. What's that going to do in terms of potential defaults, but also just general pressures on the social environment?
2: Yeah, there'll definitely be more social unrest and general anti-business mentality possibly.
0: Yeah, I know from our regular CRO roundtables, I think the risk of civil unrest is definitely a lot higher on people's radar now than it was even, say, a year ago.
1: What are the sorts of other things that firms should be watching out for for 2024?
0: You can decide if it's interesting. But one thing I've noticed just reading the insurance inside of the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of senior war and terrorism underwriters who are moving from one firm to another which suggests that the firms they're moving to have got a strategy to grow in that area. And obviously, with heightened geopolitical risk, should come a harder market, more profitable opportunities to write business, but obviously, also the possibility of some big losses. So I think there could be big winners and losers, depending on how that goes.
2: On the more operational side as well i think if they're not already businesses really should be looking to be more joined up so the claims the underwriting the risk the reserving the pricing talk to each other everyone has different perspectives and start to actually feed that through And that's where you do get the really interesting discussions on what's happening with inflation, what could happen with geopolitical risk or a recession or those other topics that we've talked about today already. I think just involving different people from around the business is definitely something people should be doing if they're not already. I think we've talked quite a bit about doom and gloom as well, but there are lots of opportunities.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Early, I'd characterised the market as game of two halves, good years and bad years. But another way of looking at the game of two halves is that there are certain markets that are currently really hard, persistently hard premium rates, but other markets that are softening or already very soft. Properties doing quite well in terms of rate adequacy, but something like D&O is just crazy how low the rates are. And supply and demand, I guess, is at work. And there's been concerns expressed by Lloyds and others about how the market can go and writing business at the current rates.
1: One of the big uncertainties for many firms this year-end has been Ukraine and how to allow for that. We've seen a range of different approaches taken across the market. What are kind of your thoughts on that?
2: There's a lot of uncertainty in this risk still. Different firms are taking different approaches to it. There's so many things that are still unknown of exactly where is it going to fall? Is it an all risks? Is it a war? How are the reinsurers then going to respond? I think there's a long way still to go with this risk. It is a big one. It is very uncertain. And I think it's a watch this space.
0: On the forward-looking aspect of that, we've definitely seen firms look to invest much more heavily in scenario testing, scenario modelling. For example, if you take Ukraine, thinking about different ways that the conflict might play out, different ways in which it might resolve or different ways in which it might drag on. And I think that's the sort of stuff, you can't measure that using a stochastic capital model. It's simply not going to give you any insight, but you need to have a good sense of the three or four or five possible ways in which that story might play out. And of course, it's not just Ukraine. It's China, Taiwan, it's the Middle East, it's all the different conflicts that are related in some way to Iran, it's North and South Korea. Certainly big firms that have a global reach with their underwriting are looking at a much larger library of scenario tests and regularly dusting them off.
1: Something else I wanted to ask you about, Laura, was you've run a few spot surveys and market benchmarking reviews over the last few months to help with year-end. Quite a lot of our clients love a benchmark of some form. What were the key highlights that stood out from you?
2: The most recent one we ran was the year-end spot survey. So this was once people actually had their results and it covered two areas. One was inflation and one was reserve margin. So what firms are booking relative to their signing actuary or their independent actuary's view of the best estimate. And it was that latter one that really stood out to me because there was a shift from last year. And on the whole, people were actually, they had larger margins this year relative to their signing actuary than they had last year, which given all the news stories around deterioration over the year was something that I found pretty interesting And it is suggesting that people are possibly just making sure that they really do have those very strong, robust estimates in the back years where they have been making the reserve charges and making sure that if they think there might be bad news to come, they are booking it now and making sure they're not drip feeding possibly through the years.
0: It's almost like in a conversation I had recently with a reserving actuary, they characterize it almost like a game of chicken. It's at the moment, lots of insurers are balancing the books by making really good profits, they hope, on recent years, and that's helping to pay for the back year deteriorations. And overall, it's still a good news story. But as soon as the profit tap gets turned off, if the back year problem hasn't been fully solved and people have been acknowledging that maybe that the strengthening this year isn't enough, then you could start to see some insurers be in a much more difficult position.
1: And do you get a sense that there's always a bit of internal conflict or resistance maybe when the actuary comes and says, you know, things are getting worse, we need to up things here that, that can have a lot of internal politics for, for actuaries? Do you get a sense that actually there have been some tough conversations?
0: What's undoubtedly true is that reserving is a lot more scientific and robust and has stronger governance around it now than 10 or 15 years ago. So the old stereotype of management trying to twist the actuary's arm, I think it's got to be a lot less true than it ever was. But nonetheless, if you are talking about half a billion deteriorations, nobody likes that. And I'm sure those still are very difficult conversations. Now, one of the things that I think is really cool about your annual survey, Laura, is that it doesn't just look at reserving, but it looks at the interplay between reserving and business planning. And to me, that's important to put those two together because ideally reserving is something that feeds, like you said, through having good feedback loops, reserving feeds better business planning. So what are you seeing in the business planning numbers that people are submitting for your survey? And is it as expected? Or are you seeing things that don't necessarily totally make sense?
2: The really interesting thing with the business planning numbers that we see is actually they don't seem to vary that much year by year. So even though we've had very different rating environments over the last five or six years, we've had everything going on with inflation. And we've also had discussed it today, but some of those older years where the casualty lines and the FinPro lines are very, very poor, actually, the business plan has varied by very little. If you go back sort of 1718, all the way through to now, it's moving by a few points, but it isn't necessarily following exactly what the rates and the inflation would suggest it should be doing. And why do you think that is? It's a combination of things. One is actually how good are we at doing risk-adjusted rate changes? What does it include? Does it allow for everything? And is it a mechanical calculation? Can you really just put a rate on and then an inflation on and then see what comes out? There's also the loss ratio starts to go particularly low. Do we believe it? Do the regulators believe it? And actually, is there a certain number that we're all comfortable with? You don't want the plan to go too high because then can you even write the business? You don't want it to go too low because you have to get it approved. You also have to
1: hit it. So if you're trying to hit that and your bonus is dependent on it, you don't want it too low. Is the whole plan loss ratio kind of concept then almost a bit flawed and we're just in this cyclical circle of never actually knowing or getting a good answer. We've both had various conversations with board members over this year end. What have been key areas that they're focusing on and challenging on, or what are they not talking about enough?
0: We do find from our non-executive director roundtables that NEDs these days are very good at asking the questions that perhaps the executives are too busy to focus on. So it's very often the NEDs who are saying, yeah, are we moving forward sufficiently on climate change? What are we doing about social issues, both in terms of the running of the firm and in terms of underwriting strategy and the firm's identity and purpose? I have to say, the role of the NED has become extremely important and also they are listened to and taken a lot more seriously than before. So I feel like there's a real role there to ask the questions that those who are working in the firm day by day just haven't quite got time to deal with.
2: I think there's continued to be quite a lot of focus on inflation, particularly social inflation this year. There's been lots of talk on casualty and also the NEDs are very interested in what they're not doing that they should be doing and that could improve their business.
1: Well, Laura and Nutshell, thank you for a great conversation today. It's been great to get your thoughts and reflections. Definitely, from my perspective, at least not one of the worst year ends. Been a lot more smoother than it has done in previous years. So good to have one more year done. Laura, as we know, we always like to end on some fun questions. So first, we'd like to know what is your favourite flavour ice cream? Oh, that's a tricky one. It has to be strawberry. Just a plain strawberry or like a strawberry whip or ripple or cheesecake? Pretty plain, I'm afraid.
2: Strawberries and cream. Very creamy ice cream, but
0: with strawberries. And would it be real strawberries or would it be the classic fake strawberry flavour?
2: No, real strawberries. Very important point.
0: I felt I did have to clarify. I mean, personally, I love the fake one. People differ on these important subjects. Second question is, what is your favourite place to holiday in the UK?
2: So I go to Norfolk a lot around Wells next to sea. So it's going to have to be that. We can bundle up child, dog in the car and just get there in a couple of hours. And it's great particularly out of season. So it gets very busy in the summer, but if you go in the winter when it's cold and wet, I actually love it then.
1: Yeah, that's lovely. Fantastic. And lastly, what is a great piece of career advice you have been given?
2: First piece of advice was just to grab every opportunity you can. Don't be afraid, just take those opportunities and see where they take you.
0: Simple and brilliant.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Great way to end
0: Thanks so much, Laura, for spending time with us today and for talking about some really important subjects. Really nice to have you on the podcast again.
2: Thanks very much.
1: That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode.
0: This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We would like to thank Nikki Freeguard, Deepika Misra, April Harrison, and the podcast consultants for helping to produce this episode.
1: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.